Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's nothing I'm watching on Fox News where I'm saying, oh, okay, that's truth. And so in the same way, there's nothing I'm watching on Fox News that I'm thinking is funny. It's a, it's a messaging that is built on punching down. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Since the late 1960s, music has undoubtedly lost its position as the dominant pop culture medium to inspire social change. Twitter, internet memes, and viral iPhone videos seem to move the needle now more than a protest song. But unlike music, political humor and social satire still remain a powerful art form to inform and influence public opinion. Comedy is still a relevant force for social change. Our guest today is a comedian and writer who's consistently used his platform to focus attention on subjects that have social value. He's found a way to weave humor and wit into heavy topics such as police reform and housing discrimination. So what is the current state of comedy in a landscape riddled with Twitter trolls, virtue signaling, and the minefields of the easily offended? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with the former Daily Show correspondent and the creator behind the brilliant yet defunct HBO series, Problem Areas. Today, writer, stand-up comic, and wildly innovative Instagram caption crafter, Mr. Wyatt Sinek. We're rolling. Wyatt, thanks for sitting down, man. Great to see you. You as well, yeah. What a strange year. Um, I assume you haven't been doing too many stand-up sets. Have you been writing instead? What have you been doing to keep yourself busy? 
Uh, that is a very good question. What have I been doing? I, I mean, I really wasn't doing much stand up before the pandemic. So I, I was already kind of sheltering in place when it came to getting on stage. But since the pandemic has hit, I've spent a lot of time just trying to think about ideas and work on stuff like TV ideas that I've had. And for a little while, I was trying to do something on Instagram where I would play a record and uh, just kind of like shoot the shit with people. Uh, But eventually Instagram got angry at me playing music without clearance. So I stopped doing that. But yeah, it's just kind of trying to find my way through this time like everybody else. I love your captions on Instagram. I think you've really used the medium effectively to still convey comedy, but under a kind of platform that's basically designed for still photography. I I really enjoyed them. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's an interesting platform because in this weird way, I feel like it's democratizing photography in a strange way where you have really talented photographers who are posting things and then you have somebody saw a piece of poop on the subway <laughs> and they're taking a photo of that and yeah and the context is right next to each other so yeah it's a strange challenge yeah it feels like a very strange thing of like if you went into a museum and here on one wall they actually had some really well-respected artist painting And then next to it was just some five-year-old's drawing. (laughs) And are these things the same? Do they bring the same joy? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I think it. I think the problem with that is that once the public is not able to tell the difference, then it becomes a moot question. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I, I feel like I remember. I remember going to see Kara Walker had done an exhibit in Williamsburg, and it was called a subtlety and it was this giant sphinx made of sugar and the the sphinx itself looked like a black woman who had worked on a sugar plantation and what was fascinating going to see this was you saw all these other people who were there taking photos and some of them were taking photos of themselves with it in the background some were just taking photos of the sculpture and it was huge. It was enormous. And I just remember watching the whole thing and thinking how bizarre this is because there's a second thing that's happening right now. She's made a piece of art and now you have all of these people who are making their own pieces of art with her art and what that is. Because, yeah, if you're the influencer who's taking a selfie in front of it, in your mind, that's your art. Your art is here I am, the subject in this space that everyone's going to visit and that's art. But are you taking away from the message of what her art is talking about and so, I don't know, I find all that stuff really fascinating, this this kind of how social media has made us kind of reckon with the artist and the sort of everyday artist. Wow. So, you know, you're, you're a thinker, Wyatt. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I've been, I got a lot of time in my hands, you know, <laughs> well, pandemic. Well, this brings me, I mean, I guess to my, my, my first question, you know, you, you've worn a lot of different hats in the comedy space. You're, you were a writer, you were correspondent on The Daily Show for a while, you have a stand-up career. I mean, do you at heart consider yourself a writer or a stand-up comic? Or is that a very is that a flawed question? Can you not even separate the two? I mean, I guess my question is, do you get the same joy out of writing something for somebody and having that get a laugh? Or is the ultimate reward being the guy 
who stands there and says it and is on stage when, when that joke kills. Right. Well, let me go to the first question. I think there are people who will say, oh, they're a writer or they're a stand-up comedian. For me, I always saw it as I'm just a comedian. If you ask me to write something, I'm going to write it through the lens of a comedian. If you ask me to get on stage, I'm going to perform something through the lens of a comedian. If you ask me to fix your plumbing, I'm probably going to still do it through the lens of a comedian. And so that was how I always have looked at things and continue to look at things. And because of that, if I'm writing something, if I'm directing something, if I'm performing, it's really in service of what is going to be the funniest thing. And so with that, I've I've been fortunate enough to direct a few things. And those were things that I was also performing in. And it wasn't my instinct as a director to say, okay, Wyatt has to have all the jokes. It's, okay, I may not have the joke, but if this makes for the funniest scene, that's what's key. And, you know, I, I started out, I did stand up, I did a lot of improv. And I, I think in improv, there's definitely a lot of it's, it's a giving format. Yeah, serving serving the sort of greater good. And so I think, to me, it feels like with comedy, it's that same sort of thing. What serves the greater good? So if it is writing something for somebody else, that may not mean that I get the joke, but I still want to try to make something as funny as I could make it. Because, I mean, you see a lot of, you see a lot of writers, comedy writers, who, who get into stand-up. And their sets may be really good, but you get the sense that it's great because the material is great. And it's almost as if any skilled comic could probably make that material work. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have someone, let's say, let's take Dave Chappelle, for instance. Like, aside from comedy, I think he's one of the most gifted public speakers of a generation. You know, he also happens to be incredibly funny. But if you were to transcribe his set to words on paper, I don't think it would translate. I mean, I think his, his end product is such a part of his cadence and his personality and his timing, and you can't really separate the two. And, and I'm not making a value judgment about either of those approaches. I just, I've always been fascinated with, with the process. You know, so like on that spectrum, where do you see yourself in terms of writer versus performer? Or is that, once again, is that a difficult question? That's maybe a tough question because I see the two as intertwined for me. I was always wanting to both perform and knew that to do it, I would have to write my own stuff. I didn't I didn't come up thinking that anybody was going to be thinking about writing something with me in mind. So it always felt like, okay, you need to write stuff. But even as a kid, I had, I'd admired a lot of stand-up comedians and I admired seeing performers who were writers, who wrote their material. To, to your point about that idea of somebody being perhaps a great joke writer versus a joke teller, but also how material is so sort of unique to the performer doing it, there's a video, I'm sure it's still on the internet, it's from years ago, but there was a, a charity event, like a televised charity thing that uh, Chris Rock and Stephen Wright did a bit. And the bit they did was they swapped each other's stand-up sets. 
And it's a fascinating thing to watch because it goes to your point as far as each of them have such specific voices. And I think for any performer who's writing, your voice comes out in what you do. And what's interesting and what was interesting in that video is to see them now with each other's material trying to make it make sense in their voice and that's really interesting it's almost more funny to see the ex the execution of it and the exercise of it than it is to really get in and dissect like oh did this person you know nail this joke or were they funnier with you know was chris rock funnier with stephen wright's material or was stephen wright's funnier with Chris Rock's material, it feels like, oh no, what's interesting is you see just how unique their particular voices are. What Can you pinpoint an era or maybe even a couple of comics where there was a, a transformation of people writing their own material and when that became really important? Because that's such a part of comedy now to the extent where, you know, people accuse others of joke theft and, you know, and it's so much about writing your own material, but, you know, it wasn't always that way in the same sense that musicians had songwriters you know there's you know tin pan alley wrote songs and then eventually you know the beatles and right. you know carol king and then there was a kind of a sea change in music did that happen roughly around the same time with comedy that's a question i don't know the answer to i mean what i would say today though is that there are still writers writing for stand-ups on a regular basis i think you know especially for those stand-ups who are big enough and can afford it they are paying multiple other comics who are coming up to write jokes for them. And, you know, even in the world of stand-up, there is an element of it in this sort of social element where you watch somebody's set and you might say, oh, hey, here's a tag you might have thought of. And you're not asking for credit or money on something like that. That's just friendly, kind of like, oh, I saw this thing here. This this might help you out. You left this tag on the table. or yeah. I think a lot of times where sort of the conversations of joke theft come in, those come into those places where it wasn't a thing of, oh, someone sort of generously saying like, oh, hey, here's a tag. It's, oh, you just watched someone set and you heard their joke and you ripped off their joke and you don't know who they are, but you're a big enough or you think you're a big enough comic and that they're a small enough comic that you can get away with plagiarizing them and that this will not catch up in any way to you. Or the flip side of that, you're a comic who's working in such a small market where there's maybe not access to comics outside of your market that you can steal somebody's material, perform it, and nobody's going to know until they wind up like moving to L.A. and seeing that comic on stage. It's so interesting. And I mean, it's such a unique art form because you don't find that within music. Like, I mean, if if you walk in and a band's doing a cover of a song that you wrote, it doesn't make that song, you know, like yesterday is not any less of a song because every person on the globe has done a cover of it, you know, but is there something about comedy that the more something funny is said, the less it's funny? Is that what's at the core of what that's all about, really? I don't know if it's that or if it's the idea that, you know, with music, the beauty of music is you hear a song and, you know, somebody makes a song, it gets played on the radio a bunch, it wins awards, someone doing a cover of it, it's an honor and homage, but also chances are you have to pay the original writer uh, to do that cover. There's a lot more built into music as far as crediting 
the original person. And I think with comedy, it doesn't really live in that same way. I think even the shelf life of comedy doesn't live in the same way that music does. There are very few stand-up comedy specials that if you were to go and just randomly grab one from 20 years ago or 40 years ago that hold up today. It doesn't age as well. Yeah, and so I think in that way there's this, there's a little bit of like a, well, comedy is, uh, a, you know, there's quick booms and also big busts and in how that operates. And so it feels like, well, okay, if you have a great set, you need to find as a way to kind of like monetize it, profit off of it, build off of it, because the shelf life on it is very short and it just doesn't have that same sort of recognition and accolades. You know, I think Comedy Central tried to some years ago do like a comedy awards and Unfortunately, comedy is just not even built for that. It's hard to say, oh, this person had the best joke when it's like... It's so subjective. <laughs> all of that stuff is subjective and it's and it just doesn't live in the same way that... Like you can't judge it the same way that music gets judged or movies get judged or television shows. And so I think for all those reasons, it's always this medium that struggles to both like get that respect and recognition, but also, yeah, to have any sort of longevity. Well, this also, I think this speaks to this kind of ethereal nature of, of what you're talking about with comedy. Like, why, why do you think the conservative right has not been successful at comedy? Like, why is there no daily show on the right? I mean, I know they've attempted a couple times and it's always fallen flat. I mean, currently the funniest thing on Fox News is Tucker Carlson. <laughs> like, right. He's fucking hilarious. <laughs> like, what? Like, is it as simple as fear isn't as funny? I mean, what is, what's that all about? Again, I think it becomes a subjective question. I, I feel like if you were to talk to people on the right, they would say, oh, yeah, we have really funny people. They, you know, I feel like they would point to uh, Dennis Miller and say, like, oh, Dennis Miller's hilarious. But that's that's one comic who actually later in his career that they claim. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's no, no, that's a pretty. But I but I think if you were to go into those circles I feel like there are people that they point to as like, oh, this person's a comedian. Like Steven Crowder is somebody that they view that I think a lot of people on the right view as a comedian. Glenn Beck, to some degree, when he was doing his Fox show, I think he saw himself as a comedian. And I think some people saw some of the things he did as funny. That's not to say that I find them funny. I and. I think there's the argument, I think in the broader sense, there's the argument as far as punching up versus punching down. And it feels like so much of what we think of as the sort of Fox News conservative is one, it's a, it's a messaging that is built on punching down. It's a messaging that's built on this idea that there is no strength and weakness and that there is this kind of like groupthink that we all follow that doesn't allow for different voices or disagreeing, disagreeing voices or diversity. And I think that's part of the argument. But I also think that it's a conversation that you and I, as to I'm assuming you're a progressive person and as a progressive person, I think between us two, there's nothing I'm watching on Fox News where I'm saying, oh, OK, that's truth. And so in the same way, there's nothing I'm watching on Fox News that I'm thinking is funny. 
But when I see photos of things from like Trump rallies where you see people selling T-shirts with what they think are jokes, those are things I find offensive, but they think they're jokes. And they've chosen to live in a world where that's funny to them. And I don't dis- I don't like it and I disagree with it but in their mind they live in a world where racism is funny and so uh and so it's like okay yeah I I was reading something the other day where somebody had gone to like a a gun show and they were talking about uh, it was this writer Michael Harriet and he wrote this really powerful piece about guns and on this website the root but he was talking about going to a gun show and seeing something there and Michael Harriet's black. And he was one of the few black people there. And he saw, I believe it was like a sign. Uh, it was for like a gun case and it said something to the effect of like break glass in case of black lives matter. That's the punchline. And that's yeah, the punchline. <laughs> and that's, they think that's funny. And that's, there's a person who made that, who put, who invested in it to say, oh yeah, we're going to make that. And there are people who are buying that. So I, so it's that thing of like, oh yeah, I can't say that they don't have a sense of humor. They have their own sense of humor. It's just one that to me seems abhorrent. Not funny. Yeah. Um, well, I saw like on your Instagram, on your, on your bio, it says, I created a late night show that now lives in the garage of the internet. Yes. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought that was a really funny, but probably healthy and cathartic way of addressing something that I'm sure was really disappointing and difficult um, when the show got canceled. And like, I was a big fan of problem areas. And, Thank and, you. and after, after the show went off, I read a lot of press about people kind of trying to do a postmortem of why the show didn't get the traction that it, that it probably deserved. And a lot of the stories really started with the, the assumption, the predicate that it was a great show. Like it was insightful and it was witty and it was well done. I think, and I think one of the theories that some people had was that the show was maybe a couple years ahead of its time. In light of what happened in the past year, like with BLM and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, you did an entire series on police reform. Like, do you feel, does that make you feel vindicated or are you even more frustrated that you weren't able to continue with something that you thought was like really valuable to have on the air? I mean, it's frustrating as long as these things continue to happen, as long as we still live in a world where policing is something that puts American citizens at risk in the ways that it does. And specifically people of color, disenfranchised communities, that they seem to get all of the police and none of the resources and that that's still the world that we live in. And so there's something frustrating. It was never my thought with the show that like, okay, we're going to make this season of television. All of a sudden, you know, there's going to be this sea change in policing or then in the second season with public education. But what felt nice was to shine a spotlight on some of these things that are happening that are perhaps a little more tangible that people can do. That when you see communities pushing for things like greater oversight over their police departments, whether that's in New York with like a civilian complaint review board or in Seattle with legislation that they were pushing for there, I think there's something that feels hopeful about this isn't this isn't something that just that can only happen if the president is uh, a Democrat 
and the House and Senate are also in the same, you know, vo- all voting together as a block. These are things that may even be a little more tangible because they're in my neighborhood and in my community and I might be able to to do something. And so I, I think, you know, for me, seeing everything in the last year, there was definitely the frustration that I just felt as a black person, as a human being and seeing these stories that I feel like I have seen and been told my entire life as someone who tried to make a show that talked about these things there's something frustrating about talking about these things. And now we had started a conversation with the show about things like the defund the police movement. And I just saw a few days ago, we, we had had that conversation in Los Angeles and talked about it as it relates to the policing of homeless people. And I just saw that in Los Angeles, the cops are still running raids on homeless people in a pandemic. And and I think there's something from an ego standpoint as a person with a show. There was there's the thing of like, oh, God, I wish I could still have this platform to talk about this stuff. And so it's less it's less of an I told you so and more of a like you just wish you still had a voice to be able to continue this conversation. I think it's the support. to It's the support of that voice. I still theoretically have a voice I still can go on Twitter uh you know but Twitter doesn't pay rent and and so I I think it's it's that support that okay here's a network that's going to give me a platform to do this here is a staff of really talented people who all have hopefully bought into this collective vision to do the research write stuff to to try to tell the best stories we can about these issues that are important to me and important to everyone in the building. And so I think it's, you know, it's it's that more than it is. Uh, and I told you so, because, again, at the end of the day... What's that good for? What's it good for? And it's not, you know, I, I don't think... I, I'd, be, I'd be foolish to think that any of these shows have the ability to actually do anything more than entertain and inform. And it's the informing part that like, okay, you maybe heard or saw something you hadn't heard or seen before. And that may cause you to do a little more research or to start a conversation with other people in your life. But any of that stuff that happens, happens outside of me and outside of what we did. It's, it's, that then becomes your actions become the pebble that becomes the snowball that becomes the avalanche. I, if anything, I like a show just shows you that like, Hey, you're on a hill. And if you want, there's a pebble there that you could roll. I mean, I feel like when, when sharp political commentary and comedy are done just right, when you get that chemistry, just right, it can be really powerful and transformative and, and poignant, you know, but, it's really hard to do. And, and I, I got the sense that, you know, a pie in the face or dick jokes come a lot easier, you know, but they don't, they don't mean anything. Right. And I mean, do you ever feel a conflict between the journalist in you and the humorist in you in terms of like, do sometimes you feel like you just, you're at a disadvantage because you are, you have such a yearn to create comedy that's thought provoking. I mean, do you ever, you ever get, secretly jealous of like a prop comic or like, you know, like there's definitely elements of other comics where you see the ways in which they're silly 
or goofy that I'll sometimes say like, oh, that looks like fun. And that seems like a totally different thing than what I do. But that doesn't mean that I don't have a silliness in what I do. Uh, I think I've... Of course. But I mean, but trying to find the humor in in a sardonic take on housing discrimination or police reform, like that's a that's a much bigger challenge than just making people laugh. With a fart joke? Yeah. I... You know? <laughs> Which isn't to say they're not both funny, but like, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is like, I, I respect the, the work that you put in on trying to make the comedy stand for something more than just jokes. But at the same time, it must be difficult to have the mantle of having to educate and entertain. I guess so. I mean, I think to me, I've always looked at it that, you know, comedians are a reflection of the world that they see. So to me, the world that I see and interact with is one that perhaps is a little more, whether you want to say political or socially aware than perhaps someone who's just doing fart jokes. But that's the world they see. And there's a privilege in a world where all you see is fart jokes. And, and And not everybody gets to see that. Not everybody engages in that world that allows you to sort of ignore those other things or to see the world in that way. And so I guess for me, that's, I've always kind of looked at it. I like the world that I come into contact with is one that I see, you know, whether it's things that are happening in my own community and neighborhood or things that I see reading the paper or listening to the news, I'm impacted by all those things and I feel all those things. And so I feel like if in that way, though, you know, comedy is this reflection of society and what I experience, it's always going to it's always going to have that until I'm, you know, some multimillionaire who lives (laughs) on an island where, you know, all of my neighbors are either millionaires or, uh, you know, just like animals that are very friendly that that don't <laughs> shit where they're not supposed to. I mean, so do you think that there's a sense of privilege for a comic choosing to opt in, or even an audience, for that matter, choosing to opt in on something that's not just throwaway observational humor or puns or something? I mean... I mean, it's a choice. It's definitely a choice. And it's the same choice that you see people make when they want to disengage with the conversations that are happening outside of comedy that are just happening in the world. When you see people who will look at something like a story of police brutality and say, "Ah, I don't want to I don't want to engage with that. I don't like uh, haven't we already talked about this? Like that's the that person, whether you put them in a classroom, a comedy club, or sitting next to you on an airplane, they're probably always going to want that world where they don't have to. It's inconvenient to have to learn from that comedy. Yeah, or to just have those conversations. Because I think at the heart of it, what those people who want to disengage, what they know and won't honestly admit to is that to engage with these conversations also means to take a hard look at oneself and look, a, take a real critical eye to yourself and see that you may be complicit in 
some of these things that are happening. Maybe the best example of it is like you look at your iPhone and it's like, okay, we all know how iPhones get made. We know like they are not made in the best, most ethical ways. And yet we continue to ignore that because we want all the things that the phone gives us. I mean, they're not made by union white people in Wisconsin in 1965. No, not anymore. Not anymore. Steve Jobs tried that the first year, and he was like, this is not making me any money. Um, Well, looking back on problem areas, is there anything that you would have chosen to do differently, like other than maybe being white? (laughs) No, I wouldn't have chosen that. that. I think it's... (laughs) But I mean, that was one of the theories that I I know was discussed. There was this this two-season cap for political comics that happen to be black or it's, you know, DL and, and, and Larry Wilmore. Right. I mean, do you, do you think that was a real issue? Do you think that, that the show would have resonated more if it was coming from Neil Brennan instead? I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, it's a question worth asking. I think now seeing, you know, Kamau Bell's show is, I think on it's maybe fifth season now and, Deces and Miro have found success on Showtime and Amber Ruffin just got renewed on Peacock. The hope is that there is more space for these voices. But also, I think it's not about it's not just about the space. It's recognizing that the standard by which these shows are held to isn't always a standard that they can succeed in because there are two things that work sometimes with these with with shows when you have a host that's a person of color. One is you're held to a standard that is okay. How do you fare against all the shows with white hosts? But then there's a second thing, which is we brought you into this network for diversity to also bring us a more diverse audience. So are you bringing this us that audience as well? And are you bringing us enough of that audience? And what is the metric that we are sort of measuring that success by? And so you kind of find yourself in these two worlds where it's almost a it's almost a strange kind of no win situation sometimes that is like even if you brought if you brought a huge audience of color, if that audience isn't sticking around for the next show because they don't care about that next show is the show a success by a network standard yeah. because it's just like, well, you're really just bringing people in for this half an hour, but you're not keeping them here for whatever the show is afterwards. Again, I think when you see Decent Miro, Trevor as, as well has done quite well for himself, Kamau, Amber Ruffin, I think it's, it's you know, when I think about Larry's Larry's show or that paradigm has changed since then. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think about Larry's show. I think about Robin Thede had a show on BT. Uh, I had my show. Uh, DL had uh, his show. I, it did seem like there was a stretch where it was hard to get that support and to get people to say, "Okay, the metric for success is not. We're not going to hold you to this weird standard. We're just going to say." Okay, do we like this show and are we willing to give it the time that it needs to grow? To develop. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you were a correspondent on The Daily Show, you had a pretty high profile disagreement with Jon Stewart over a Herman Cain segment. And 
I know it was a long time ago. You've talked about it a ton. The only reason I bring it up is I think it's I think it's really relevant in today's context for two reasons. Like one, Herman Cain recently passed away of COVID, which I thought really didn't get the proper context that it deserved, considering like how much of a you know kind of MAGA anti-masker he was. Um, but then more importantly, like within the context of of cancel culture today, I'm curious what's what's the proper response for somebody who is a victim of like a perceived cancel culture infraction, but their political ideology aligns closely with the left. Is that, should that be a kid glove situation because you take into consideration like all they've done and the entirety of their politics and what they've accomplished? Or do you think the left has a responsibility to lean in and set a higher standard? Because it seems like there's like a double standard in a way, you know, if you look at you look at, you know, Ted Cruz is not going anywhere, you know, right. and it's almost, it seems like it's the far woke left eating the centrists right. and the far right are laughing all the way to political office, you know, like Donald Trump was rewarded with the White House for it. And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it depends. I think you see it. Gerard Carmichael had a really funny take in, I think it was his first HBO special, or maybe it was the second one. But he he kind of talked about this idea that I don't think he he wasn't calling it cancel culture, but he was just kind of saying like if if there's still if you're still making things people want, then you have value in society, regardless of how terrible you are. And in his in his joke, he kind of talks about Bill Cosby and Woody Allen and the idea that people still like Woody Allen movies. And so as long as they still like Woody Allen movies, Woody Allen gets a pass. Yeah. But Cosby stopped being interesting to people. (laughs) And so he, you know, it's easier to get rid of him in that way. When I think about that idea of cancel culture, it's a strange thing. I feel like I feel like it's a weird conversation sometimes that we're having about a thing that doesn't always feel like it's really a thing. To your point, that like I feel like I see a lot of people on the right who talk about this idea of cancel culture. And I think what they've done I think they've co-opted. I mean for I don't even know I wish there was a better term. We're using that for lack of a better term, but we, you know, we both know what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um but I mean, I just I, I came up with some interesting examples. Let's say like Jimmy Fallon in blackface, for instance. Like, was that a bad call? Absolutely. Was it tone deaf and poor taste? Absolutely. Offensive? Yeah, probably. But does that represent his politics? Like, absolutely not. And he caught a lot of flack for that, you know. Or or but he you know, caught flack. But he caught flack. But he's still working. Yeah. And so I think that's I think that's the thing is that he's allowed a redemptive arc. I you know when I think about my experience at The Daily Show and that Herman Cain thing, that wasn't about Herman Cain. That was about a particular impression that evokes a specific type of minstrelsy that existed where white people made fun of black people using very specific voices and mannerisms and to continue to carry that forward, it's only just normalizing something. And so it was more about this normalization of something that's offensive. And I, but I mean, no, I think that, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would assume that in general, 
your political ideology and John Stewart's would be roughly aligned. Like you didn't have a, you clashed specifically on that issue. And I completely agree with you. I'm not, I'm, I think you did the right thing there. But the point is you weren't calling for the show to be canceled or you weren't boycotting the show. You had an issue with him as man to man. And eventually you were able to, to squash that. And John, I think he learned something from it. And the point is, I don't think that happens as often these days. That's the problem. That's what I'm getting at. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like that's not a fair statement. I I mean, I can't speak to I can only speak to my experience. And so I I don't know in terms of that idea that people get to learn things and grow. I don't know if John learned anything. No? I don't okay. know if I mean, he. I'm taking I, that at face value. I'm, yeah, I don't. I don't. I honestly, I don't. I don't know. I like, and that's. But that's also not like I'm not his judge, and so, and I think that's the thing with any of this stuff is that none of us are really the judge on this. We, especially with the things that go public, you know, there is this kind of desire for. A, a sort of public trial of these things, but none of us are really in a position to kind of like judge or put out a sentence. And so, and so I think in that way, what also becomes tough is then learning growth, any sort of penance, forgiveness, or redemption also are things that theoretically, if we were having a real public trial, we would also be doing all of those things in public. But none of this stuff is actually really happening in public. What you see is you see an event that people are offended by. You see a sort of immediate response of a jury that's not actually in a decision-making process. Sometimes a a decision-maker steps in, but then you don't really see... If if they're learning, so yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess on a on a similar theme within the world of of comedy, have you noticed? I mean, this has been a pretty strange year for comedy, but you know, COVID aside, did you notice a lot of comics in the community self censoring their material because of audiences that were too woke? It seems like a lot of people, have, a lot of audiences, have conflated being offended with being righteous, and that would be a really dangerous and and frustrating environment to have to do stand-up comedy and take risks like have, have you had any blowback from anything you've ever said on stage um i've definitely i feel like i've definitely had stuff in shows where i said something and maybe an audience member or multiple audience members were groaned or something like that and yeah. i think in those moments to me it's always felt like it's in those moments that there's an opportunity for learning, both as a comedian and as an audience, that it's, I think, I think it's a very easy thing to just be like, ah, fuck you all, you don't get it, and kind of like go through it. But it's also just as easy from the audience to be like, oh, I'm, I'm offended, you can't say that. You know, I mean, it kind of feel like it cuts both ways, no? It does, but I think what's, I, I think what's interesting about getting on stage and doing a show to me, I feel like comedy is at its best when it's in a small venue, when it's in 
of a space, probably 400 or less is when it's at its best to me because it's still something that you can interact with the audience in a way that is much more personal. If you're in an arena and somebody's offended, you never know it. And the thing, you know, the thing about the thing about an arena or any really large venue, if you're on stage and you're in a 5,000 seat venue and you get 20% of the room to laugh with you, that's a thousand people. That's still, that sounds like a lot of people. And I've been to shows. I remember sitting in the audience at, uh, I saw Seinfeld. This was years ago. And I went to San Diego to see him perform. And he was in like a 5,000 seat theater. And I remember him telling a joke and it sounded like huge laughter. But I looked around everywhere, like everyone sitting around me and nobody was laughing. (laughs) And, but on stage, it seems like it kills because it's still a thousand people. And but in a small club, doesn't that work conversely? Like if you're performing in front of 150 people and 10 of them are ugh, and a groaning because they're woke and they don't like something you said, like doesn't that have the same effect? But I feel like what's nice about those moments or what can be nice is in a smaller venue, even if one person groans, you have the opportunity to engage with that person if you want to. That's what I appreciate sometimes about being on stage is those sort of moments that can open up the dialogue in a different way and that and then you kind of wind up potentially finding something that you didn't know existed that like you may walk away and it's like oh that's it like I had this conversation with this person and it was really funny and at first we didn't understand one another but by the end of it we're laughing like I feel like Patrice O'Neill was the master at stuff like that. And one of Patrice's albums, the audio is there and you can hear it all. He and this woman in the audience are yelling at one another. They're just yelling. And this is before, you know, conversations of woke audiences or whatever. Like this was an audience member who just wasn't like she like I think he said something about being like overweight. She didn't take to it. And he just got into it with her and they went back and forth and back and forth. And it wound up being this very funny thing. I am. And that person, as far as I know, stayed in the show and they found something together. Now, Patrice probably never, you know, I don't think he was then like, okay, hey, I need you to be my new comedy sidekick and you're going to come with me to shows and yell out things. But I think what's beautiful sometimes is, you know, when you get on stage, the idea the idea is to make everybody laugh, but it's it's not that everybody should be the same and that everybody should be this monolith. It's that I got that black person to laugh, I got that white person to laugh, I got that couple to laugh, I got that uh, transgender person to laugh, I got that teenager, that old person, that like all these people collectively came together and found this particular thing funny. And if somebody doesn't, I think there is the opportunity for understanding or for having a dialogue that didn't necessarily exist 
years ago in comedy. I think I think that's that's kind of the evolution that's happening. And that's not to say that audiences should feel free to just shout out whatever they want. But I think especially in a smaller venue, you create this intimate setting where you can sort of uh, you you can have a shared experience. And to me, live comedy is at its best when it does feel like this shared experience that the thing that happened on this stage is not repeatable because it's it's special because of the 200 people in this room right now. And it was something we built together. When I think about comedy, I, I've never surfed, but I always I always think about it like surfing in that with surfing, there is no perfect wave. You can go and you can surf the best wave of your life. And you're like, fuck, that was the fucking best wave. You're never going to get that wave again. But you go back out there because you know that there's another perfect wave. There's a wave that's it's and that wave is not going to be better than that last perfect wave. It's just perfect in a different way. And that's, I think, the thing that like in an intimate setting, when it's at its best, the audience is that wave that you get to ride and they're perfect. And then you have one that's not as great. And then you go back out there and you get like the wave crashes on you. But you keep going out there because you want to find those magical moments. And what in terms of, of the blowback from audiences, do you think there's racial politics play a, a factor in that? Like, do you feel like you're insulated or held to a higher standard because you're a black comic? Because like, I get the sense, like say Dave, Dave, Dave Chappelle, for instance, like the heat that he took for his LGBT material, I thought he was pretty effective at addressing and, and deflecting, and he's just so beloved. But at the same time, I, I got the sense that if that was a white comic doing it, that the blowback would have been ferocious. Like, you think that's a fair statement? I don't know. I, I mean, I think some of it is audience. And I think it's like, one, how big your audience is, but two... Who your audience but I mean, once is. at a certain point, especially today, like it's it's actually that's the problem is it's it's not about the audience. It's about it becomes about the world as soon as it's said in front of a small audience. You know. Yeah, but I think it's but in some ways I think it is it's there's still a certain aspect of who is the intended audience that if you're a comic performing for a specific audience, they may not be as offended by some things as the public at large. And so that audience may insulate you from that sort of backlash. Because in that context, it's funny and it's appropriate and it's understood the place that you're coming from when you're saying that joke. Yeah. And so I think in those ways, it's, it's as much, again, in thinking about that idea that like comedy and comedians are a reflection of the world around them. When I think about somebody like, Andrew Dice Clay, and even when people, when there was backlash at towards Andrew Dice Clay, there were still arenas that were going to see him, and they were arenas of mostly white, very aggro people. Not ironically laughing. No, <laughs> and they loved his material, and that's who that material was being catered to, and so they were insulating him from 
all of the voices of people of color or gay people who were offended by the jokes he was telling. And because that audience, what he was, was a reflection of that audience where you had an audience that were like, oh, yeah, this doesn't offend us because this is also these views reflect our own views. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, I have, I have one last question for you. This is, we're going to lighten it up for a second. This okay. Is a, this is a, oh, Justin no. Jay asks comics questions. Um, so <laughs> I, I grew up, I, I grew up watching stand-up comics on, on late night shows since I was a kid. I've always been a huge fan. Every, you know, from Carson to Letterman, Conan, all the way to Leno. And it wasn't until a lot later in my life that I realized something that seems completely obvious in retrospect, but you know, the comedians, when they're on the couch and they tell that funny story, like it's completely pre-produced. Like there was a, there was an interview that was done. The host feeds them that line and uh, gives them an opportunity right. to say this like funny story. And it seems so obvious, but I, I just, you don't realize it until much later in life, but those comics are so adept and experienced at making it seem extemporaneous. And it's just like coming off the top of their head. And obviously it's not, but you know, that said, I'm wondering what's it like hanging out with comics? Like when you guys are drinking beers with each other and then all of a sudden, somebody works in a story about, oh, I just went to the zoo yesterday. Do you ever notice that the lion, like, do you ever like, whoa, 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 are, are you doing a bit on me right now? Like, what's the <laughs> protocol? Like, is that like a gentleman's agreement? Is that verboten? Like, how, how do you guys, how do you guys interact with that? I feel like most of the friends I've hung out with, we rarely do bits on each other in that way where you try to like uh, slide something in. I think oftentimes there's... I mean, it's one thing to try, but like, oh, hey, I'm working on this. What do you think of or what? But yeah, but I'm talking more about just the like slyly like, oh, I'm so funny. I'm just going to drop this. And you're like, no, nah, not not buying it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, you know, there are those comics that do that. I I maybe have been fortunate that I don't hang out with many of those uh, and try to avoid those comics. So for me, yeah, I, I, I try to I try to steer clear of that. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like even when I was coming up, the comics that I knew so much of the conversations were conversations of like, Hey, I'm working on this thing. What do you think about this or that? Yeah. Uh, and more often than not, somebody might tell a story and they might tell a story in a funny way. And you might say, Oh, you should talk about that on stage. Or is it like an organic way of like having a bit come about rather than organic, but I also think supportive. I think that when I, when I hear people talk about, the comedy scene of like the 70s and 80s and early 90s, that kind of like comedy boom time. I feel like a lot of the conversation around it was that it was hyper competitive and that there was this real sort of competition to be like there's money to be made and you had to be cutthroat. And also in that way, because there's this boom happening, there is a lot more theft happening. There's a lot more, you're more protective of your stuff. And so I feel like a lot of that kind of like trying stuff out on each other was probably born out of the paranoia of this really hyper competitive scene. Yeah. And when I came into comedy, I feel like it was in a sort of bus time uh, and so it was, I think, a little more supportive because there was this thing of like, oh, yeah, a sense of camaraderie because it's like, oh, we're in this 
thing that is languishing right now. We all have to stick together. Yeah. And that it was, it was a little bit more, we're not the days of somebody doing the tonight show and getting a sitcom are gone. Uh, And so we've all chosen to walk into something that we're going to have to have jobs and we're, and we're going to have to, you know, it's, it's, it's probably going to take us all a while. And so I think in that way, maybe because of that, it became supportive in this way that allowed for comics to want to help each other and, and be more open with one another. Do you find a lot of your comic friends or maybe even some of your favorite comics, do they tend to be the funniest people in the room? Are they the one that's, that's lighting up the room and making people laugh? Or are they tend to be more the kind of quiet, thoughtful person who has like a witty mind and is able to craft that and then present it on stage? I feel like a lot of the people that I know, I think tend to lay in the cut and just kind of uh, observe and want to have conversations. And that's not to say that they're not funny but I don't think I don't I but it speaks to the duality there's like an onstage persona and there's an offstage and I think there's some comics that would be like Robin Williams is lauded as this like comic genius like maybe he was but like it would be exhausting to hang out with (laughs) yeah no there are definitely those people that are probably more on than they are off but I think you see that in like actors and musicians and there are just those people who want attention and getting on stage was just one way of doing it, but they are chasing some kind of a dragon that is just like... hole or something. Yeah, (laughs) that's just like, okay, I just need attention. I need all eyes on me at all times. And I think you find those people, you do find them in comedy. I think you find them in all kinds of... All walks of life. All walks of life. But yeah, I feel like in, in my experience... When I'm around those people, I I tend to look for the door when I can. <laughs> well, we always like to end this show by giving the guests an opportunity to plug something other than themselves that they feel hasn't gotten a lot of attention lately, whether it's like a book or a movie or a comic or a cause. Like, is there something you want to give some shine to that um, you can kind of want to pay it forward and bring some attention to? Uh, sure. We were talking about late night shows earlier and... Uh, I mentioned Amber Ruffin's show, and I think it's a really funny show. It is when I think about what I loved as a kid watching Conan and just how smart and silly and fun it could be. Amber's show, in a similar way, like takes me back to that teenage feeling of like, oh, wow, comedy seems like such a fun thing, and I would love to... I would love to do that. And, uh, and so I will, I will pay it forward to Amber. I think. Amazing. Where can we find her show? What, what network? Uh, her show is on Peacock, um, the NBC streaming service. And then they air it on Fridays on NBC, uh, in the late night spot. Um, but yeah, the Amber Ruffin Great. show. No, that's terrific. That's exactly what we love. I, I wasn't familiar with that and it's on my radar and I will definitely check that out. Wyatt Sinek, thank you so much for sitting down, man. I feel like we kind of, we, we got into some deep stuff, but I really, I appreciate your honesty and your oh, perspective. Yeah. And uh, I, I dig what you do. I'm really excited to see what you have up your sleeve. So uh, Thank you. I am too. 
<laughs> Hopefully uh, our paths will cross soon and uh, all the best to you, man. Oh yeah, for sure. Thanks for asking me. Talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan with sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.